There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Everybody, I'm Tiffany Hoyd, and you're listening to HBCU 468, the Ronin Fellows Podcast. I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C. at the Howard University, where it's cold and wet. Here with me today, all the way from Grambling State University, is Deja Harrison. Welcome to the show, Deja. Do you have any thoughts on All-Star Weekend? I really enjoyed All-Star Weekend. You know, congrats to Joe Harris on winning the three-point contest, but I didn't know it would even be possible to follow up on Steph Curry after he went perfect on his money ball rack and started out 10 for 10 on one of his rounds. So I was really excited to see the OG Ray Allen on the court again, but I expected a little bit more from him. You know, he didn't make any shots, but it was still nice seeing him on the court. We also have another one of the Roden Fellows on with us today, Alana Bearfield from Xavier University in Louisiana. What's good, Alana? What's up, Tiff? I'm great. From the looks of it, it looked like everyone had a great time at All-Star Weekend. From Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union hosting a spades tournament to J. Cole missing a dunk after Dennis Smith Jr. Yeah, the J. Cole dap-up of Gabrielle Union at the game was definitely on my Instagram and Twitter timeline, all the memes that follow. Yeah, this is how you are supposed to greet my significant other. And what are your thoughts on this NBA halftime and all these crazy twists and turns this far? Twists and turns is absolutely the phrase to use because it's been crazy out here. The KD Kyrie landing spots will be a huge topic of discussion concluding the season, but I don't think anything will trump the Pelicans offering Anthony Davis about half the Mississippi River and the rights to Bourbon Street. <laughs> I'm crying. Yes, I know that Tobias trade had a lot of people shook, but don't worry. LeBron will slide right into that Clipper spot towards his championship. We have a great lineup for y'all today, but we also have our favorite guest and co-host present with us, Bill Roden, the crown and glory of the Roden Fellowship. What's up, Bill? Do you have any thoughts on All-Star Weekend? Uh, I'm just wondering. I, I, if I, went, I just wanted to see what's up with Anthony Davis. What are y'all going to do with Anthony Davis, Alana? Um, that, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of fans in New Orleans are not happy about him because he wanted to leave. Yes, well, we will definitely have to pay close attention to these headlines in the coming off season. But let's move on to something a little closer to home. Today on the Roden Fellows podcast, we have someone very special, and we have a very special topic to jump into. HBCU women's basketball. The quadruple-double legend Shakila Hill is here with us today to discuss the haters, her beloved Grambling, and who she is outside of basketball. And just in case you are not familiar with her, Shakila is a senior two-guard from Grambling State University. She first made national headlines when she scored her first quadruple-double last year. She did it again earlier this month, making her the first NCAA women's player in history to have two quadruple-doubles. How you doing, Shakila? I'm good. How are you? Oh, we're doing good over here. So, Deja, I know you were telling us about this hashtag Grambling is everything. You want to ask uh, Shakila about how she got that started up? Um, well, I think Shakila can tell you herself, but um, she actually <laughs> did an interview with HBC Game Day, and um, someone asked her what did Grambling mean to her, and 
Well, Shekyla, you can tell them. <laughs> um, as Deja was saying, I did an interview with HBCU Game Day, and they asked me what the scrambling meant to me. And um, <laughs> all of my emotions kind of came running. I don't know if you guys have seen that interview, but I cried like a lot. And mm. the only thing at that moment I could get out was Grambling is everything because mm. Grambling has been everything for me. Um, it's put so many people in my life that have been um, shoulders to cry on, friends that have looked out for me when nobody else would. It's just been, like I said, it's been everything to me. Mm. Hey, Shakala, this is Alana. Um, you know, a lot of people know you about know you for basketball um i was just wondering what's your major and if you couldn't play basketball what would you pursue my major is criminal justice with a minor in psychology and um if i couldn't play basketball i would still be at grambling on an academic scholarship because i was initially coming to grambling um on an academic scholarship and coming into college i wanted to be a lawyer Mm. you still want to be a lawyer (laughs) Um, yes, it's like my plan C. (laughs) Plan C. (laughs) Plan C. Oh, what's what's plan A? This is Bill. This is Bill Roden up in New York. Um, basketball is definitely plan A. Coaching is plan B. And then it's, um, law school. Hmm. I know you said you were going to go to Grambling anyway, but how did you find yourself there? I mean, what was the recruiting process? You know, was everybody after you or you know what um actually no um i didn't really have that many offers coming out of high school and um coach david pierre actually recruited me and he stayed on me um he called me a lot he kind of annoyed me but he made me feel like i was a part of the family the graham fam before i even stepped foot on this campus and then he like harped on the fact that like I need to come here. I need to play for Nadine Damone. And, like, she's a different breed of lady. Like, you need to meet her. And then um, I came here, and I fell in love, and I've been stuck ever since. You know, Shakila, you know, this is your senior year. You know, you're going to walk across the stage this year to graduate. Congratulations on that. Um, what do you want Grambling to remember you by? I always say I want to be remembered. For one, I'm very funny. I don't know if a lot of people know that I'm very funny. But um, (laughs) I want people uh, to remember me for being a good person. I mean, like, basketball is huge right now as far as me. And, you know, it's a small college, so, you know, it always gets, like, a lot of attention when somebody does something good. But I want people to know that I'm a good person, and I try to be a good person to everybody that I encounter here because I've met so many good people. Who's your favorite comedian? Myself. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? But I'm not like a comedian, like one of those comedians, like like I can stand up and just tell like jokes. It's like like talking about people kind of funny. So it's not really a good person type of funny, but it's funny all the same. Do you talk trash during the game? Um, no, I try not to because I feel like this is going to happen. Like, I feel like people already like think that I'm a mean person, like on the court. <laughs> so I try my hardest not to like, like take it any further because then that's when stuff gets physical, which I don't mind. Like, I'm not scared of that, but I would just rather it not go down that road. So have you dealt with any haters along the way? It's your senior year, uh, your basketball phenom. Ha- have you had any key experiences? You're like, oh, that's a lot of hate, but. Um, you overcame um, yesterday. that. Yesterday, um, actually, we went to Alcorn <laughs> to play. Um, and I'm just glad this is my last year and I never have to go back there. But 
<laughs> like literally the whole game, they were just yelling, like, Miss Quadruple Double, we came to see you. You haven't done anything. Like, you haven't scored since I've been here. Um, I was shooting free throws. They were yelling overrated. I was like, <laughs> it was like, you suck. Like, uh, But it was just like, it was more so from men. So it was like really harsh. And I was just like, yeah, I'm so glad I don't have to come back here because you guys are really mean. Mm. Uh, so how did you play through that, Chicago? Like, you know, I acknowledge that I heard them by, like, eye contact, but I never really, like, you know, said anything to let them know, like, they got in my head. And so eventually, probably towards the end of the game, more so like the end of the third quarter, they finally got quiet because they realized it wasn't phasing me. Like, um, when they would talk at the free throw line, I think I only missed one free throw. So it was like they realized, like, it really wasn't getting to me, but on the inside it really was getting to me. So it's crazy Mm. that I didn't really show it. What do you, what do you what do you anticipate? You know, the tournament is coming up. What what kinds of things would you like uh, for yourself for Grambling in, in the in the SWAC tournament, but then beyond that, what what kind of things? What what would you like to do? Our overall plan, um, and it's been our plan since the beginning of the year, is to win the SWAC tournament and then go on and be the first HBCU to um, pass the first round in the NCAA tournament. And initially, as we were entering um, conference play. And before we ended up losing to Jackson State, we were actually in, like, really good position to do all of that. We had beat Indiana. We had beat Loyola. And all the teams that we had played, I think we had, like, the third hardest schedule in the nation in preseason. Mm. So um, we were actually set up to, if we were, like, to continue winning, to not end up going in the tournament as a 16th seed, having to play somebody like Baylor or Mississippi State or something like that. But these past couple of losses have kind of set us back. I don't know where we are at exactly. We still have the same goal in mind, but we were in a way better position before we dropped those couple of games than we are now. How how do you feel about that, about, um, you know, Usually, HBCs always have to be that sixteen versus one. It just seems like it's, you know, unfair. Um, um, I feel like it's very unfair, but I feel like it's set up that way automatically, kind of, and that sounds bad, but I feel like it's set up that way because nobody wants the HBCU to go out there and advance in the tournament, if that makes sense. They don't want the people with less money and offense, all the black girls, to go out there with less funding, with worse-looking uniforms, with worse facilities to go out there and show the rest of the world that we have talent like the other people that are playing in million-dollar facilities with million-dollar trainers and things of that such, if that makes sense. Mm. But, you know, it's it's a lot of just backtracking. You know, when you got your first quadruple-double, you know, a lot of celebrities reached out to you, people who are in the basketball industry like James Harden. You know, I saw that you tweeted about that. And then, you know, LeBron James talked about you. Um, I just was wondering, have they still, re- you know, stayed in contact with you? Um, what was going through your mind when you saw so many people who are so high up, you know, talking about you? Actually, I never directly, like, spoke to any of them. So uh know about the keeping in contact. But um, at that moment, then when it happened, the first time my phone had actually died after the game. And so um, when I reached my dorm room or whatever is when I actually saw it. And then I think I went into, like, a full panic mode, like, you know, of shock because – it was Chris Paul and James Harden tweeting about me, and then a couple of days later, because I don't think LeBron said anything initially. It was actually a couple of days later when he um, said something, made the video or whatever, and I was just, like, in tears. 
Well, I know you're leading um, in the swag for scoring, but who are some other players in the swag, you know, that you feel like are great players? Um, Shayla Dobbins is one. Um, I feel like Texas Southern has a nice post in Artavia Ford. And, of course, I feel like my whole team, Jasmine Boyd, Justice Coleman, I feel like my whole team from the one to the five position are great players. Just, I want to follow up on something you said a couple of minutes ago about you know, being the 16, playing the one. I know you love Grambling, you love the experience. Was there ever a time that you said, wow, I should have gone to, like, UConn or, or <laughs> Baylor or um, something like that? Maybe not UConn, but um, my freshman year, like I said, I came here with under Nadine Damone. And I don't know if you guys know her, but anybody that knows her and played under her and just has been around her knows that her vibe is completely different than – probably anybody else in this world. And so um, coming in my freshman year, I cried literally every day. Um, probably the first week of summer school, I cried every day. I called my dad every day ready to go home. I wasn't ready to go to UConn. I was just ready to go home and just be done with basketball, period, because it was so hard and it was so different for me. Hmm. What stopped you from leaving? Um, my dad told me I couldn't go home, but um, my mom... <laughs> My mom definitely told me I could go home. Um, the first, I live, I'm from Arkansas. I live three hours away from me. So the first, the summer school, actually, my mom told me to pick me up the first because I was so sad. But my dad told me I couldn't leave, so then I was just stuck. So I had no choice. How do you think that all built you into the player you are today? I actually felt like that molded me to the player that I am today. Um, I feel like Nadine Damone really started the process of um, really, like, I can honestly say she broke me down and she humbled me, like, let me know off the rip. Like, you know, coming in from high school and you're like the star player and in college you have so many expectations of what you're going to do and what you plan on doing. And she let me know that literally word for word I was not that good and she would have somebody else here tomorrow if it came down to it and so um her by her being that hard on me and letting me know like that I wasn't as good as I thought I was that humbled me and it made me work even harder to get to the point that I am now I feel like I've always been like a skilled basketball player but a lot of the things that I do now came from her humbling me her sitting me literally at the end of the bench like until like the last two minutes of the game getting in tight playing time I feel like a lot of that came from her breaking me down and then starting to build me up before she went back to Rutgers well not back to Rutgers but before she went to coach under Vivian Stringer at Rutgers did you ever think about following her actually no but we still talk like every day well at least every week she still keeps me updated. She still lets me know, like, how she's doing, lets me know what I need to do better. So I feel like the relationship is still there, and she's still a huge part of my life. But I'm not meant for cold weather, nor did I ever plan on leaving Grambling. <laughs> so many people have been key people in your life, especially coaching you, building you up. Do you plan on, you know, striving to play in the WNBA one day? And if you do, can you explain to me the process of how to go if you do want to go that route? Yes, actually, I do want to go that um, route. And honestly, I don't really know how to go about it. I mean, it's been people like, you know, talking to me about it. And there's also been like um, people trying to contact me or whatever. But, you know, I can't officially talk to them until I think until – 
March. I'm not really sure when the timeline is because I really don't respond to anything until or I'll tell my coaches and they'll be like, you're not supposed to talk to them. So I really don't know the road and how to go about all of this right now, but I do plan on playing professionally if the opportunity presents itself. Kyla, you know what's crazy? Um, I've had people that have reached out to me to get in touch with you because they see I'm a reporter for Grambling. They see me interviewing you. My Twitter DMs, I have Twitter DMs for you. So <laughs> when March comes, I'm going to let you look at that. But, um, you know, me going to Grambling, I know you better than anyone, you know, in the call right now. But we want to know more personal things about Shekyla. So, like, you know, what type of music do you listen to? Um, where do you go out to hang out when you're not on the court? You know, what, what do you like to do outside the court? I listen to a lot of Sam Smith, Ariana Grande. I don't really listen to a lot of rap and stuff like that. I listen to a lot of, like, slow music, like I'd be trying to vibe. And... um <laughs> As you well, you guys don't know, but here in Grambling, it's not really too many places to go. So um, I really I sit in my room a lot. I just started this show called Blacklist. Well, I didn't just start, okay. but I'm on this show called Blacklist, and it's like um, my favorite thing to do as of right now because I'm not really a party person. So even if there was places to go, I probably wouldn't go because I'm like a home inside homebody type girl. You said you uh, you like to get into your shows. Like Blacklist, um, what is like your favorite show to binge watch? Grey's Anatomy. I actually, um, okay, for one, I'm cheap. <laughs> I'm cheap. So um, <laughs> if you know Grey's Anatomy comes on Hulu. So I only um, pay yeah. for Hulu when it's Grey's Anatomy season. I don't pay for Hulu any other time. <laughs> I already pay for Netflix. I'm not paying for both at the same time. <laughs> so um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I only, um, but then I'll wait until the end of the season and then just watch all the Grey's Anatomy at the same time. I tried to do that this season and I got like so like wrapped up in seeing the tweets about it. Then I just had to watch it and I think I watched like four episodes and I'm really upset with myself because it's the middle of the season. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Shakila, what do you think about Ariana Grande not performing at the Grammys? Um, actually, I have no idea what that was about. I think I had read something that said um, the man had said that it was too late for her to get her things together for it, and then she said that didn't happen. I didn't really read too much into it because I don't really like I don't really like the Grammys aren't <laughs> like that's not really something that I'm really into because I don't I feel like all of that is biased. Honestly. So were you in support of J Cole? J Cole said it's more about what the fans think and less about. Um, with the Academy thing. So he didn't even send his music to the Academy. Are you in support of that? Yes, he sent a tweet before that that um, actually, like, um, I related to a lot because um, all through my high school, um, okay, I went to high school with a girl named Jessica Jackson, and I kind of lived in her shadow. And then towards my end of my high school career was kind of like when I kind of broke out but I played against people like Jordan Danbury that goes to Mississippi State, Alexis Colfrey that goes to Arkansas, and people of that sort. So I always felt like I was overlooked. And then I came here in my freshman year, and every year up until kind of um, this year, I feel like I've been overlooked. Even last year, I thought I would get player of the year, and I didn't. So I've always had a hard time up until last year, towards the end of last year. I've always had a hard time with 
people, I feel like people not giving me the credit that I think I deserve. And so him um, writing that actually, like, you know, touched the spine in my heart because I realized, well, I'd realized that before, but realizing that other people feel the same type of way and they, like, had to deal with that on their own and realize, like, you don't need to be validated by anybody else as long as, in, in my case, it would be my family and myself believe that I'm doing everything that I can and that I'm a great basketball player and a great person. It really doesn't matter what, no offense, what the the swag or what anybody else really has to say and as far as the awards go. Well, do you do you feel that you are are respected throughout the swag? Although you didn't get player of the year, do you, you feel that team to team that you're respected? Um, yes, by teams. But then again, I really can't say. I feel like going in, like to games, I feel like players and coaches, they acknowledge that because um, most, well, every team we played this year has boxed and won me. But when it comes to awards, you never know. You know, before you go into any game, do you have a certain ritual? Do you have to listen to a certain song to really get you hyped up to go against another team? What is What do you do? Um, before every game, we have a shoot-around, and I have to make sure that I come home. I live, um, like, seven minutes away from school. I have to come home, take a shower, and I have to take a nap. This is like a non-disturbed, like, nobody can call me, text me, like, bother me type nap. And I take my nap, and then after that, I'm, like, into game mode. And so then before we go out as a team, we all pray together. But then after that, I find, like, the hiddenest corner in every locker room that we're in, including our own, and I do my own prayer. So whether I'm, like, praying in a locker and I close the locker so nobody can see me, I have to find the most hidden place so nobody can disturb me while I pray. Also, is there anybody who inspires you within the basketball world, you know, like LeBron James or Skylar Diggins? Definitely LeBron. He's my favorite player. And Skylar Diggins at this point, too, because she's showing that women, you can have, like, all of it. You can be athletic. You can have the kids. You can have a marriage. You can do everything you want to do as far as that. But um, I love LeBron's game because he does everything that needs to be done to help his team win. And then also he helps out his community. Like you don't really hear anything bad about him. He's just giving back. He's a, like, he's, I don't know. I don't even know the word for him, but he's just a great person. Like on from the outside looking in, he seems as if he's such a great person and he's so in tune with what he wants to do business wise, um, people wise. And so, yes, I definitely look up to him. And Shakila, uh, I know you created that hashtag, Grambling is Everything. If you have 30 seconds to, to tell the next generation of HBCU women's basketball players why they should go to, come to Grambling, uh, what would you say? Go ahead, shoot. Um, you guys should come to Grambling because literally Grambling is everything. If you want a second family, if you want a second home, if you want a second group of people that will forever look out for you, Graham fam is definitely the place to be um, from football season to basketball season to baseball and softball season and not even just athletics, academics, the teachers look out for you, the advisors look out for you. There's never a point where you're not going to be looked out for when you're at Grambling. So Grambling is definitely the place to be. Grambling is the place where everybody is somebody and Grambling is everything. Hey, Graham. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on with us today, Shakila. We really appreciate your time. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Shakila. Well, guys, Shakila kind of started us on that conversation about the Grammys. I watched bits and pieces of it because I was doing my little protest with Beyonce. 
I am a member of the Beehive. Um, but did you guys watch it? You know, Tiffany, um, I'm also a member of Beehive, of course. But um, same thing. I kind of watched different pieces, seeing J-Lo with her hat and her um, her dress, you know, seeing Drake. So just catching those different main pieces on social media. Yeah, same. Um, bits and pieces and most of it, I just, I usually just type in a Google who won the award for which category. So I'm not a, a too big of a fan of the Grammys. I didn't watch. Point <laughs> <laughs> blank. Great out. Yeah, no, I didn't watch. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that there's just uh, so many things that are so many reasons why we wouldn't watch it years past. I know I was really mad when Beck won that award over Beyonce. And even though I know that Adele, she's an amazing singer, but she won over Beyonce. And we all know like Lemonade, that album, artistically, creatively, and just the, the music sales, that was the album of the year. So it just seems like, uh, like, uh, Shikaila was saying it's just a lot of bias that goes into the process and then the fact too it's like even when Adele won the award she went up on stage and she said they had a heart-to-heart with Beyonce you know Adele looking at Beyonce saying you know you deserve this too and it, it doesn't matter about an award and it kind of goes back into what Drake was saying when he took the stage of you know if people are spending their hard-earned money to come see you perform i mean does it really matter but at the same time drake kind of contradicts himself because he gets to walk home you know put his grammy on his shelf and look at it every day i don't know what you guys think about that i just think the whole thing of winning a grammy is a hype because there are a lot of artists who didn't get grammys that sold millions of records had a huge impact on people's people's lives and you know were very popular and like Sometimes I think, what are the Grammys based off of? You know, music sales, artist popularity, you know, 10 people in a room voting for this artist. You know, if so, why are they qualified? So that that's the whole thing with the Grammys with me. I think that it made sense for, like, people like Cardi B to win. And I think that was an award that in several years, like, I thought that that award actually made sense because of the fact that, Cardi B had hit after hit on that album. And so I felt like, okay, all right, I can I can calculate that. If I look at Billboard, I can calculate that. But like two years ago or or when the Beyonce album came out, when Beck won, it was like, who is Beck? Like you, you didn't know who that person was and you just felt like betrayed because it, it was like the odds were just stacked against these entertainers that you love so much. And there's no doubt that Cardi B... She stepped up to the plate. She should have. She won this award. Other people shouldn't be saying, well, she shouldn't have won. You know, she deserved it. And a lot of people said for, especially where she's from, you know, her background, people were saying that it felt like they won also. And I don't know if you guys saw, but BT tweeted saying, quote, you know, meanwhile, Nicki Minaj is being dragged by her lace front. And Nikki kind of, you know, she responded and said, I will not attend any more BET functions. Mm-hmm. I think that that was crazy. That was just insane. Right, right. I don't think people was necessarily mad about Cardi B winning, but I think it was just the fact that Nicki Minaj, she's been in the game for 10 years. She doesn't have a Grammy. So why doesn't mm-hmm. she have, have a Grammy? You know, she's 
a very popular artist. She sold millions of records. She's broken records. She's had plenty of top ten songs on Billboard. So mm-hmm. why doesn't she have a Grammy? So that kind of, in a sense, the Grammys, they lose their credibility. Correct. She's been nominated for 10 Grammys. And the fact that year after year, still Nicki Minaj's name is not number one. But do you think she had an album like Privacy? Like, Privacy had hit after hit after hit. Like, Nicki Minaj, she has hits, but Nicki Minaj was also competing against Drake at the height of his career. And Jay-Z was still dropping albums. And and you had J. Cole's Forest Hill Drive when Nicki Minaj was dropping albums. Like, in the category of hip-hop album where they would place Nicki Minaj, I don't think she had a record, an album to compete for her years. Mr. Rodin, what do you think about the Grammys' credibility as far as, you know, yeah, I mean, artists? You know, it's, it's such a tough thing. I guess my stance is that if you get an award, you know, revel in it and celebrate it because of heart. It's, for all the reasons you guys have mentioned, it's hard. If you can do it, cheer for people who get them, you know, because, you know, it's, it's very difficult. But if you don't get it, like somebody said, that does not define you. Now, there is a practical financial benefit, and that's what I think part of the issue is, that getting a Grammy Award or getting any kind of award gives you cachet. It could help you get the next contract, or it could help you up your fee, your appearance fee. So there is a financial component to being able to say you won an award so or a Grammy. So that that's real, you know. Um, but just in terms of, you know, how you feel as a musician or as a journalist or whatever, you know, I mean, it's, you can't let those kinds of things define you. Now, you know, I appreciate the people still, who felt strong enough about that they stood that they that they stayed away. What did you think of the people who did not stay away? There are a whole bunch of folks who did not stay away. Like our forever first lady, uh, Michelle Obama. Yeah, she was there front and center. Front, up, front and center and bringing out all those other powerful women um, alongside her. And she showed how you can use a platform that hasn't necessarily been designed for you and and make the most of it. And, and I say the same thing for like Alicia Keys. Alicia Keys, she had kind of been stagnant in her career. Uh, she she kind of like stayed away from music. Her last album didn't do as well as previous albums. This was a way for her to revive her career, and and people identified that oh, this is still Alicia Keys when she did the In My Feelings and then switched to the Boot Up and then to the Lauryn Hill album. Like this is still Alicia Keys, and and you have people that you have to pay tribute to, like the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. And I think that they did an incredible job in that selection. Of, of singers for the tribute to Aretha Franklin. You have Fantasia, Yolanda Adams, and Andre Day. Yolanda Adams is a gospel singer. You never expect her to come out and sing uh, a song like this, a secular song like this, and she just did an amazing job. And so I think we have to give credit where credit's due to the Academy on that one because it was thorough and it, and it was good. And then you have people like Chloe and Halle that got an opportunity at the Super Bowl to showcase their talent and then they're at the Grammys and maybe like and maybe that's not like a a lot in the grand scheme of things like okay Beyonce didn't get a reward but this is another generation of young black entertainers that got a huge stage 
And there's also just one more point I want to make is that for Alicia Keys to host the Grammys, this was the first female to host the show in 14 years. And to see her, that she went on stage and she tackled the job literally and did a great job at it. You know, people were calling it quote unquote club keys. You know, you really just really have to applaud her for it. I think also you have to applaud the Academy. Like in a sense, it was like they heard us that this is America one record of the year. We don't know half of what he was saying other than this is America, but it won record of the year. And, and you have someone like Alicia Keys come out, like in a lot of ways they paid attention to things like that. And, and changed a lot of the things that we had, like we had saw flaws in in previous years. You know, what did you think of Drake? Somebody said that, well, if he felt that strongly, why did he show up to uh, to accept the award? To that, I will say, like, yeah, there's a bit of like irony there, but he also hasn't come to receive a lot of awards in previous years. Like this is like Drake, he made a surprise uh, appearance at this award show and accepted this award. And then he has something very powerful to say. I like this new woke Drake, the Drake that is uh, speaking out against certain things that are going on in the country. I know he's a Canadian, but uh, he does business here in America and one of his parents is American. So I, I like, I like the fact that he is paying attention to things that, are affecting his fans that are buying his records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about using that platform. Definitely. Did you guys see Joy Villa on the red carpet? She has uh, continued to use her platform, speaking of platform. On this particular red carpet, she, you know, she's a supporter of Trump, and so her whole gown was uh, dedicated to uh, we need that wall, build the wall uh, the year prior. Um, she was, she was just talking about how, how we need to all vote MAGA. So, but, uh, we're going to have to leave the conversation there, uh, and take a a brief break before we get back into things. We're going to come back and talk about blackface, um, the phenom that is, uh, swooping back through America, uh, with a deep rooted history and, and it's going on all around us. get into a very very serious serious issue that has been far too common a recurrence in recent in recent history the issue at hand is a perpetual appearance of blackface in old yearbook photos sweaters jackets toys the list goes on and on before we dive in quick history review blackface was first used in the u.s in the 1820s as a way for poor immigrants to show that they deserve to be treated better than blacks even though they pretty much occupied the same social classes. A little later on, it was used in minstrel shows and became a really cruel way to mock black folks and make us look stupid. Fast forward nearly 200 years later, blackface is still around, but it seems more complicated. Every year, some frat boy dresses in blackface and gets backlash. Then come to find out, some of our favorite entertainers like 
Jimmy Kimmel and, and Jimmy Fallon have done it too. Then we have Megyn Kelly. Uh, uh, Megyn Kelly asked, what's wrong with dressing up like someone you revere, like Diana Ross? It's left a lot of folks trying to figure out how to address it, heal from it, and stop it from resurfacing in the future. Here to help us break all this down is Alfred Mathewson. He recently retired from the University of New, Me- of New Mexico, where he served as dean of the law school, taught sports law, and served as the director of Africana Studies. Full disclosure, he's also the father of our favorite producer, Aaron Mathewson. But perhaps most importantly, Mr. Mathewson is a graduate of the... Howard University, yes. Uh, well, welcome to the show, Mr. Mathewson, and feel free to talk about the Howard University, and that's uh, definitely uh, an ode to the TV guide. Yes, that was four of the best years of my life. <laughs> yeah, four of the best of mine as well. And I, I don't recall seeing anything about blackface while I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although I did, I did get the history of the minstrel shows. Um, so they did their due diligence in telling us the the history of it all. Well, what, what's your what's your take, uh, uh, Professor Matthewson? I, I, you know, there's been a lot said about blackface and and all that, but I'm just curious to get your take on sort of what all this means and what's your reaction to it. Well, I, I would say that to me, it's an it's an opportune uh, moment in terms of what we will do about blackface. It's, it's been with us, uh, as you recall, just in terms of relating the history, for a long time, and it keeps uh, popping up. Um, what we see now on college campuses um, is we still have incident after incident where uh, white students uh, will do something uh, to try to make uh, black students and other students of, of color feel uncomfortable. You get blackface, you get nooses, uh, uh, maybe the Klan uh, outfit or songs or, or something. And uh, college campuses are dealing with that. And I know f- from my um, connections with undergraduate students and, and listening to them, uh, things are very different for them uh, uh, before they come to college. That their experiences now are different from the experiences that I had growing up, and then they get to the college campus, and all of a sudden they're hit with something that they perhaps had not encountered before coming. It it uh, takes a toll on them. They feel uh, betrayed. It affects sort of the the campus climate and the environment. Um, and they want something uh, uh, from it. And this latest incident with, with Governor Northrum, uh, what we are seeing now is that the the uh, college students today, they're getting it from somewhere, and it was from their parents' generation who were doing things, who found it acceptable, who say they didn't even know it was wrong. Um, and, and and so I think this is a, a time to say, wait, we need to do something about blackface, and, and at least in terms of going forward, uh, that there is a, a norm, a consensus that blackface is wrong and it is not acceptable. And so at least in terms of going forward, that, that that's the message. So when you go to college, you know that that's what your university will say. Uh, whether you're whatever color you are, that on this campus, uh, blackface is not acceptable. 
uh, and is and it has to do with the the message in terms of what blackface is about. This is about white supremacy. It is about the uh, something <clears throat> ingrained in it to uh, uh, to make it a part of culture and, and acceptance. And and going forward, we ought to make that very clear that uh, it's it's not acceptable. But that doesn't mean we still would have to address what has happened before. But at least at that one step of saying no more. What do you think about the new age blackface as far as the clothing companies like Prada coming out with the the blackface dolls and Gucci coming out with the the ski mask, the vintage blackface sweater? Do you think that'll, you know, be a, a occurring problem or because of the controversy that's going on with it, it'll die down? Well, I think the, the hope is perhaps that it will die down, but that's what I'm saying. But it, this is an opportunity to say no more. Mm-hmm. So in terms of product lines, uh, you will know, company will know that uh, this is the norm. This is our value. No more. It's like every couple decades we have to come back out and say, no, this is not appropriate. Popped up in the 1830s, of course, or it hit U- the U.S. in the 1830s and then died out and came back in the 60s and then again in the 80s. And now we're dealing with it in 2019. And why do you think it's just continued to pop up? Well, this has something to do about teaching history and, and making sure that people uh, do know the history. When I say no more, that doesn't mean that. Uh, we forget the history or that we don't talk about it because we do and need to make sure that people understand why it's no more. Not that it's at some point we said that, but you still are going to learn about why. Uh, there is, uh, I just saw something in the New York about the decline in teaching history. And and that only the, the uh, uh, at the elite schools you're finding more uh, support for the teaching of history and, and and not so much elsewhere. I know in in the black community we we often hear my generation complaining that the next generation doesn't know the the history. Well, we need to make sure that the history is known, and and that the history of blackface shouldn't be obscured. And but we need to make sure that there is information, the history in terms of why it's not. Hey, Mr. Matheson, this is Alana. You know, you kept talking about how it's not acceptable in society, but can it ever be forgiven, Um, especially when you see artists or people in society who are not educated on blackface? Well, that's uh, uh, I do believe in in forgiveness and redemption, and and that goes to sort of individual um, acts, but I think that blackface, and this have to go back to terms of what it's all about. If in that Northern Yearbook, remember, it wasn't just the blackface; it was with the uh, it was alongside a picture of the Klan robe. Um, mm. So, that what what you are looking in terms of of its use and what it meant, the the use of blackface, even going back to the eighteen hundreds was depicting black inferiority uh, and it, it and it was uh, communicating a message uh, one is, is the the people who were using it but it's also the people uh, to whom uh, they appeared with it and communicating a message that was passed was passing down and that's the real uh, trouble with seeing it on college campuses today is that a, a message about black inferiority 
uh, being something acceptable that you can that you can put on the blackface. But it comes in the in the, and it's not just the blackface that you're seeing on, on campuses, and it's the a, a newer generation that is picking up on things that they learned from their parents, and that's what we have to say. You know, is we can't just let this one slide. We need to seize this moment and and do something to make and, and so that we can say, I know more. I talked to a lot of students at Grambling um, about the recent controversy about the clothing lines. And, you know, all of them questioned, like, who comes up with this stuff? Did anyone not see something was wrong with it? You know, especially since the ideas have to go through multiple people. And I also asked, like, if more people of color were in charge, would this happen? You know, this is an example of modern day racism in America. You know, the blackface tradition. And I'm also thinking, why did all this happen at one time? Like, all of this happened at one time. Gucci, Prada, you know. Um, so was this planned? Because no way possible all these clothing companies at one time comes out with something that relates to blackface. Uh, well, one, I think they tend to copy each other. Um, I, I don't mm, know. True. Very true. Uh, so, I mean, you... you uh, something works, and I, so one would be sort of the, tracking down the history. Which one was first, and where did it appear, and how did it, did it come out? I think um, it's also true that we're probably paying more attention to it now, so that the the clothing lines uh, might not uh, have gotten as much attention, uh, just in terms of the context of how how it was. Uh, Presented, but right now uh, we are more sensitive to the issue, and and so uh, something we we might have let something slip by a, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and and now mm-hmm. we're, we're paying attention. But you mentioned uh, that you asked the students um, at, at Grambling. I don't know what sort of conversation is happening at the HBCUs in general on, on the the topic. Do you do you remember a few years ago? Well, long, longer than that. When remember when the actor Ted Danzing showed up at a war show with Whoopi Goldberg, and he showed up in blackface, and Whoopi actually defended him, pointed out that you know he was trying to um, make a point or something like that. If you haven't seen, I mean, it's, it's a while back. Yeah. You gotta Google that. Uh, and look at it, but it was Whoopi Goldberg who was sort of defending Ted Danzig, and they were trying to make a point. You know, um, and you guys were talking about who's the actress, I mean, the the person who was on the red carpet just the other day, the Trump supporter. Joy Villa. Yeah, Joy Villa. So, I mean, you know, you've got all sorts of people. Well, here's what's um, uh, Bill, in terms of trying to make a point, because I, I do think that in order to to tell the history is that there are settings mm-hmm. in which you have to show what you're talking about. Right. Uh, um, and, and so I, I, I can see uh, instances in which there, there might be uh, a play, a show, or, or something in which it is used in order to convey the message about what it is. Um, but I think um, when you, if, if you're going to uh, try to do something like that. It has to be very clear. If, if if we're saying no more, when you use it and and you try to do something with it, you're running the risk that 
we're going to say that's not acceptable. And so you need to be spend some time thinking about what it is that you're trying to do um, uh, in conveying that message. And I can just think of a lot of countries. You just show up at an award show, and you, you, uh, I'm going to figure. How will I figure out that that's uh, right. something that you're trying to communicate? I think you have to be very careful about that. Yeah. How do you? You know. I mean, how do you? We enforce. You know, we say no more. But what's the leverage? How do we, you know, if you're like one of the students on the phone, you're from Hampton or Xavier or Grambling, or uh, how do you say no more? What, what's what's the leverage that we have when you're facing this, you know, big racist machine? Well, I, I think there there are different settings. I, I think one of the things that you've seen on college campuses where uh, you're seeing uh, students who have taken action. Uh, you think about the University of Missouri and um, you know protests. Uh, so just in terms of the particular uh, setting, I think uh, even in terms of, of um, what's happening in Virginia, uh, I, I'm not a politician. I try to stay out of the <laughs> the, sort of the, the, pol- the political side. But, but I do think there is something to uh, say that there's no more. But I do think it's a good question in terms of what does that mean. Uh, some of, that, of, of the consequences, I think, uh, will... We'll just have to let it bob and and happen. Some things, uh, there are going to be people who are advocating for things. I do think that there are differences of opinion as to what should happen or what the consequences are. But certainly uh, those who uh, think that they have a strong view of taking a stand about consequences uh, should continue to take that, that stand. Uh, there is a, a something else that occurs to me about this, and I'm thinking about uh, Virginia and um, and the question of forgiveness. Uh, because I think, as I said, the Virginia Democrats have deferred to the Black Democratic Caucus. Uh, so if you get, if the caucus forgives, then we we will be waiting to see what you will do. And I actually think on this this issue of no more, this isn't just a statement that uh, blacks need to make. This is a statement that Americans need to make. And it's actually important to hear mm. where those other Virginia Democrats actually stand um, and and what they think we should do, as opposed to simply waiting for the Democratic Black Caucus. Because that puts, mm. puts it on blacks you, to forgive. Right. Right. You make such a great point. I mean, this thing of forgiveness, but not only just forgiveness, but not just black people being sense, but everybody. You know, everybody. Um, I, I think that's, you know, that's how, I guess that's progress. You know, from every decade in the 50s, uh, you know, the the white people who joined the civil rights movement said, this is not, you know, I'm not necessarily crazy about black folks, but this is not the country I signed up for. This is not the country I recognize. And I guess that kind of thing is what you're talking about. It's not, you know, the burden of morality is just not just, it's not just our responsibility to uh, you know to help tame this beast. It's everybody's responsibility. And, and I think that's a message that I that I got at Howard uh, in, in terms of what would happen when we left. Uh, that this this wasn't just merely about um, where blacks were at any particular time, but it was in terms of the the whole and and the country and and but the need to advocate. Uh, uh, to others uh, to take a stand, uh, to stand with us.
You know, when you said that everybody has a responsibility to talk about this, what I've noticed at Xavier is that we don't have candid conversations like this. We are the only Catholic HBCU. I do feel like a lot of conversations that are not being held because people don't want to feel uncomfortable. And, you know, when we talk about blackface, it can be an uncomfortable conversation to be had. Um, but going moving forward is that you see for Halloween for costumes, um, people were dressing up in the blackface and, you know, there's this whole thing of saying, well, I'm not racist, so I can wear the blackface. What are your thoughts on that when it comes to Halloween costumes or even when comedians like Jimmy Fallon and um, Jimmy Kimmel who dress up as it? What are your thoughts? It's not a question of what, whether or not you think it is. Uh, you, uh, you're not intending to be. Blackface is racist. And it's not just that it's racist. It inculcates a message. It, it, it promotes black inferiority. Uh, it's just something that we have to say is 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 not acceptable. Well, just to add to like what you were saying, I think that would like bring you to like this this predicament where you're like, do white people get to define what is racist? Do they are are they too privileged to identify that something is racist? So do we have to define it for them? I know that you spoke earlier about. Should it be something for all Democrats to decide or for all black people to decide um, in Virginia on the on how we should move forward with Northam? But like, do they get to define what we consider to be racist? No, they certainly don't get to define what we consider. Um, But in order to combat it, in order to do something about it, we can do something if a message is articulated. So if the non-blacks in the Virginia legislature were to take the position that we don't think it's racist, it gives us something, because we think it is, that we're going to have more than just a little conversation about this. So this is going to be a, this is going to be something uh, that we're going to talk about loud and, and long. Uh, so it's not about necessarily about them defining it. But I'm going to go back to something different uh, uh, related to this. And, and the Dred Scott uh, decision was a infamous Supreme Court decision in 1857 in which Justice Taney, um, in writing the majority opinion, said that black people had no rights that white people were bound to respect. Uh, it, it, it's very interesting in terms he, of how he talks about white supremacy. This was the state of knowledge at the time. It, it was the state of science. That this is what how um, whites of the time were educated is what they were taught, and and that's how he got to uh, his opinion. But it was it was it was the state of knowledge, and this is what I'm saying with with blackface. This is something that communicates a message over and over again. Uh, that it is the same message, uh, so the same view that Justice Taney. Uh, was presenting in the Dred Scott decision. And that's why uh, we have to take a stand about it because it perpetuates that message. You talked about just now, like, the the education on blackface and and the lack of knowledge. In a lot of black communities, they're, like, they're lobbying, they've created black course, black history curriculum 
How important is it to have a black history curriculum in all schools that's beyond an American history, two, two chapters out of a uh, history textbook? Uh, not just in colleges. I, I, I mean, you need it in the schools as well. And one is, is educating uh, black kids, but it's educating white kids, Hispanic kids, Native Americans. In, a, in American history, there are different peoples here. We need to know each other's history. But I think there are some things that we are uh, often uh, surprised to learn. And, and I can tell you, spending 35 years in New Mexico, uh, uh, as much as uh, President Lincoln has been revered for ending uh, slavery with the Civil War, at the same time, uh, the federal government under Lincoln was waging a war against Native Americans. And I didn't get that uh, growing up. It's something that I have, have learned uh, a bit out in, in, in the West. We need to know uh, the, each other's histories and, and some of the things that um, – because the things that I would say touch us and that we feel strongly about, we don't know uh, the things that touch others that, and that have affected them and, and that they feel strongly about. And there are a lot of these within, within America, and we need to get them all on the table. Yeah, yeah. I think there should be outrage. For example, that's a great. That's such a great point you raise about knowing each other's history. For example, now the president of POTUS Forty Five has, I think, been particularly outrageous with the critic. You know, with with his his attacks and tweets on Elizabeth Warren. Now, forget her issue about claiming Native American, but he he he's called Pocahontas and uh, referring to. Trail, see you on the trail, and I, I think that this is probably a point that would be a, a great opportunity for a lot of us, you know, to to express outrage. Um, this isn't particularly, you know, our heritage, but I think kind of to your point that there just has to be this outrage um, about you know these types of um, this type of racism and, and discrimination it has to come across the board. One of the things uh, about that Pocahontas comic, and even the the DNA test, I, w- I was uh, disappointed that she did that. Uh, but the, for for Native Americans, tribal enrollment is is different from just the heritage or you, that you that you have an a- ancestor uh, that that you get into issues of tribal sovereignty, and it's not just it's not just a question of of race, but. This is something that I would hear that that you would learn out in the Southwest, but is not necessarily something that you hear uh, in this cold weather New York. And I'm pretty sure I, I didn't pick this up even when it, at the HBCUs. And I, and I think that this is um, it. Just as like in terms of having Black History courses, uh, I, I think it would be good to have some Native American history or Hispanic history at the HBCUs. How do we go about implementing these uh, these different curriculum courses within the public school system? Uh, because a lot of people think it's it's harder than it might be. Um, so from your from your expertise, how do we how do we get that done? Yeah, well, I get my expertise is limited, <laughs> but I know the the Southern Poverty Law Center does a grade school districts on their incorporation of uh, how they teach the civil rights movement. They, get, there's a, they have a report card. 
I think doing uh, things like that, of, of having national organizations that look at what is being taught in schools and on you know, black history, Native American history, uh, Hispanic history. So, Mr. Matthewson, do you think that um, this is simply a marketing strategy that more racist people will buy the clothes than non-racist people will protest not to buy the clothes? Or do you think that companies are simply saying, we don't want certain people wearing our clothes? Well, it could be all of them, but... I don't know. Uh, that certainly, I, the marketing people for these companies have done some homework about who will buy the the clothes, but I don't know what that is. I, I just know that I've seen some of the the pictures of the the products and know that there is a controversy. But it would be interesting, actually, to speak to the decision makers that those the, the marketing people. And have them show their research. What? How did they determine what they were going to do? And 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 who would who are they projecting to be the market? Uh, thank you so much for that. We we appreciate your time so much. Um, thank you for uh, giving us Erin. That's I, I want to definitely thank you for that. <laughs> so I, I want to. have to do this. She she gave yeah. me, she slipped me a note and and she asked me to ask you. If, if any of you had ever encountered blackface? Um, I have not personally encountered, but I feel like maybe while I was in middle school or elementary school, but I feel like it's so faint, I really can't remember it. So in a lot of ways, I feel so detached from it, especially at an HBCU, because, you know, um, we don't have those, we don't have that issue that like a, a Missouri or an American university might have. I don't know. Do you guys have experience? Me growing up in New Orleans, you know, um, we have Mardi Gras parades and there's this crew, the Zulu crew. They're a black, they're a black, um, parade crew. They dress up in blackface every year. And I never understood why until, you know, I reached, researched the history and, um, Alana, you were talking about it earlier. So you can, can you give the history of it? Yes. Um, just basically, so what we said for the Zulu crew in New Orleans during Mardi Gras back in the day is that they didn't have money to pay for their masks. So they basically blackface, um, and they're all African American, this is an African American organization in New Orleans. Um, and still to this day, they keep that tradition alive. There were some vaudeville performers, black performers, who did blackface, kind of like the Zulus, and in fact, the first time I encountered, this is more of a coon song, uh, when Jack Johnson was fighting uh, Jim Jeffries. I think it was 1919, I believe, the, you know, the famous Great White Hope fight. Uh, when Jack Johnson got in the room, the band played uh, All Coons Look Alike to Me. And the interesting thing about that song is that it was a black man, Ernest, I forget his last name, I, I, he wrote the song. It was a black guy who wrote the song, All Coons Look Alike to Me. And I never did a deep dive into it. And there, he did other sort of minstrel songs there. So, that's, you know, this opens up a whole thing of black minstrels. I, did, I never encountered it, for example, just through history. And I was more, I was intrigued by sort of the, the, the black performers who dealt with minstrel songs and that kind of stuff. Okay, well, I, I think you've answered her question. Uh, thank you so much for that. We, we appreciate your time so much. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. This is great. All right, guys, we have to leave the discussion there. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. If you have comments, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Roden Fellows. I'm on Instagram at TTALegend. That's T-T-A-L-E-G-E-N-D. You can find me on Twitter at KingDeja. That's K-I-N-G-D-E-J-A-A. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Alana B underscore. That's underscore A-L-L-A-N-A-B underscore. And you can find me on Twitter at, at WC Roden. Instagram to come. <laughs> this show is produced by Aaron Matthewson and Roden Fellow Tucker Tool. Uh, special thanks to Tarika Foster Rasby and Kyrie Williams. I'm Tiffany Hoy, and I've been your host today. Get all of your HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Morning Roast by subscri- subscribing to The Undefeated on the listening tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment.